Oh, you guys, thank you. Thank you. It is, uh, it's good to be together like this. This is, it's so exciting, all right? And, uh, and we're going to get to the conclusion of the series, Why I'd Walk Away, in, in just a moment. But we got, like, this much more celebrating to do because Jesus was putting in some overtime last weekend at our churches, and he was doing some really, really incredible work, and we're so grateful to be a part of it. It was baptism weekend uh, last weekend, and so on the slide, I just want us to kind of take in some of the pictures uh, a little bit. A little snapshot of what God was up to in bringing people far from him to new life in his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's so good. And there's like a part of this that I didn't plan. I would love to take credit for the planning on this side of things, um, but it was not me. It was someone far better than me who was behind this. Um, there's no way that I could have planned out that early on, like the message series being halfway through a series called Why I'd Walk Away and then have Baptism Weekend lie in like the midpoint of that series and have these declarations of eight individuals who are going to stand up in front of everybody and, and show the world that they've been raised with Christ. It's so cool. I, I don't want the beauty of that moment to be lost on you. So let's let, praise Jesus one more time for what he is up to. Oh, it's so good. And as you, as you can see, uh, the baptismal is still out and next to me. So this is what we call in the church world as a Jesus encore. And, and we're going to get to more of that in just a moment. But part three of our series this morning, it's called uh, Why I'd Walk Away. And it, it, maybe you're just joining us and you kind of want a refresher of like, what, what are we doing a series about walking away from the faith for? It, it's really because that's where a lot of us are having more and more conversations all the time. And we're, uh, we're people that don't shy away from hard questions. We press into them and sometimes we find good answers and sometimes we have to look a little bit longer. But, but we're trapped kind of in this in this middle ground a lot of times. And we said uh, last week that there's, um, there's a faith that maybe you grew up with, that I grew up with, uh, a childhood faith about some assumptions on God, some of true, others maybe could stand to be challenged a little bit more. But what happens in adulthood is we start to ask adult-based questions on a childhood faith, and the answers that we're giving, the childhood faith is giving, don't stand up all that well to the adult questions that we're asking. And so we just kind of identified last week a few gods that never really existed in the first place, and a few gods that are worth walking away from. So we talked about the bodyguard God who protects you no matter what through thick and thin. And we're like, hey, listen, the good news is like you can walk away from a God like that. Because that's not Christianity, right? Christianity was actually based on the worst possible thing happening to the best possible person, Jesus. So the bodyguard God didn't actually like exist in the first place. The boyfriend God that is just around you, that you can feel him all the time and making you feel good, that God doesn't actually exist. The anti-science God last week totally does not exist. But listen, when we ask these adult-based questions to a childhood faith, a lot of times we're like, I, I think I'm walking away from faith, at least as I understand it. And then part one was like, well, I don't want to go into full-on like atheism. I don't want to like chuck God out of the equation entirely because I don't want to live in a world that's like creator-less. I don't want to live in a world that there's just biology and chemistry, just atoms smashing into each other. There's, not, there's no me in me. There's no you in you. There's no meaning. There's no purpose behind it all. I mean, I don't, I don't want to live in a world like that. And so I'm kind of caught in between these, these like two worlds. And what that's called is a nun, N-O-N-E. 
E, as Gallup is doing all these polls and finding more and more Americans all the time are identifying with no religious, no spiritual convictions whatsoever. The numbers go from like 25% all Americans, 35% for the younger generations like millennials. It could even be up to like 50% of Gen Z. The jury's still out on that one yet. But you can kind of like see what's happening as more and more people are being caught in the middle. And so today is like the exclamation point on the series. Today is the ending, part three of three and our time on this topic. And what I'd, like, what I'd like to do today is to provide you a thought or like to provide you some kind of insight. What I'd like to do is to give you permission to come back into the faith, come back to Christianity. But, but what we're not doing, we're not doing like a thought or a permission slip to come back to your childhood faith and believing in gods that may or may not actually even exist in the first place. No, no, no. We're doing like, if I could, a permission slip to come back to the Christian faith as it was originally intended to be. The Christian faith as it was originally understood, as it was supposed to, in the very first centuries of Christianity, supposed to be experienced. Before we get there, though, I kind of provide a little, little more context on this. Uh, a lot of us had our, some of our very earliest thoughts about who God is and, and who Jesus is with a, with a little song. And because I love you, I'm not going to sing the song for you. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I will quote the lyrics, and we'll actually get the, the lyrics on the screen here uh, for me, because we're all going to finish this one together. Jesus loves me, this I know, for... You got it. You got it, right? And that's honestly, it was that line where all the trouble really started (laughs) for many of us. A lot of your most difficult questions of the faith come from that awesome little song that you learned a very, very long time ago. Um, That little expression, that song grew up and, uh, and, and like a lot of you who took a puppy home because it was cute and soft and adorable and then that puppy like grew up and it turned into this like 100 pound golden retriever that leaves hair everywhere and it's got some teeth on it. Like that little saying grew up into something as well, into adulthood. And uh, I, I'm genuinely curious, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm wondering if you know what that saying is too. I saw it on a church sign a church sign that was way better than ours. It had like scrolling letters. It just didn't say the name and website of the church. It had like, you know, it was fancy. And the church scrolling sign said, um, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. A few of you got it, yeah. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And that's sort of like, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible told me so. And because I trust the Bible, the whole Bible, then I can kind of carry that on into college, into graduate school, in the workplace. I can read articles and and see some scientific research and and I can understand it because after all, at the end of the day, the Bible said it, so that settles it. And then when people started asking you some very difficult questions in college and people said, you know, there's almost like no or very shaky historical data that would support a global flood. Or, you know, you believe that the earth is like tens of thousands of years old, but the carbon dating and fossil record would suggest it's like millions and billions of years old. Um, You know, and question after question after question starts to kind of poke holes into it. And potentially for a lot of us, we grew up on the, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible said it and that settles it. 
And you're in college now, and you're going, that very much does not settle it for me. (laughs) In fact, more and more all the time, 25% of Americans, 35% of millennials, up to half of Gen Z are going, I am very, very much unsettled in my faith. And that's what we're going to address this morning. That's the permission mark. At my very, very hopefulness, I've been praying this week that this time for us would be an aha moment, that that things would fall into place, that things would click for you to give you permission to come back to that faith that you thought maybe you would never want to come back to ever again. And the aha moment is really really this. Uh, This is our our image this morning. Um, This is my actual real-life birth certificate. And I'm going to be very careful with it because it is almost 30 years old. So, no, for real though, inside of here um, is my actual birth certificate. Um, and, and kind of how we're going to spend our time this morning is, to, is just look at this as a, as a document and say, uh, the reason why I exist is not because of a birth certificate. Right? And some of you are like, yeah, that is the most low-hanging fruit you could ever say, right? The reason why I exist is not because of a birth certificate. No, no, the reason why the birth certificate exists is because something happened. Uh, the reason why this document actually exists in the first place is because almost 40 years ago, on May 17, 1984, an event took place. Yours truly was brought into this wonderful world. An event happened in history, and so a document was produced. And and that's like what we're talking about this morning, is sometimes we look at the Christian faith and we look at Christianity and say, well, Christianity exists, Jesus loves me. Why? Because a document tells me so. And it's like, no, 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 we we flipped it around. That's like the modern version of Christianity. What ancient Christianity, what original Christianity said is, no, 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 something happened in history. An event happened. And because that event happened, a document a document was produced. And so you might be wondering to yourself, what event in world history could produce a document like this one? Thank you so much for asking. We're going to go to our Bible text this morning. It is going to come from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a letter that Paul, uh, first, uh, an early follower of Jesus, wrote to a church that he got started uh, in, in Corinth. And we heard from him last week in a different part of the same letter, and now we drop into him now again in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 1. We got the words on the screen so you can follow along. And he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. I mean, he is writing like years, single-digit years and decades after the event that took place. And he already recognized they need a reminder to keep what's what, to keep the most important thing, the most important, to keep the main thing, the main thing. I would just submit to you that every once in a while, we need uh, a reminder as well to remember what the most important thing is. Okay, and he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, that I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. So if you're going to take a stand on anything in this world, you're going to take a stand not on like how a fish keeps a man inside for three days and three nights. You're not going to take a stand on whether or not trumpets can blow down walls of Jericho when the band marches around it. The thing 
church that you're going to take a stand on is the gospel by which you are saved. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word, remember, I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain because you've kind of substituted the main thing for something that was not the main thing. For what I received, I passed on to you as of, and he calls it first importance. And then we finally get this like colon in here that goes, okay, enough with the anticipation. Just get to the point, Paul. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and raised on the third day. Again, according to the scriptures. That's the point. That's the main thing. That is the event that necessitated the document that came out. And, okay, there's an and, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the 12, there were a lot of them, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, by the way, are still living. You can go, you, you can find them if you want to, though some have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for, you know, some of them have passed away, some of them have died, it's been a few years after all. And then he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up looking up to Jesus, literally, but also as brothers go, sometimes metaphorically, because they argue a lot, potentially. I don't know what it was like to live with Jesus, but they're brothers. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared, Paul says, to me also. As the one, and he goes, abnormally born. And he, he just goes, I'm abnormally born because somebody didn't tell me about the event that happened. Probably because there's no possible way in any universe that I would have believed another person who just told me that Jesus rose from the dead. After all, it was my job to arrest Christians, to persecute Christians, to have them thrown into prison or worse. So no, what I needed wasn't another person just to tell me about the resurrection of Jesus. What I needed was the Jesus to find me and say, why are you persecuting me? And I needed to meet the risen Lord on that road to Damascus, face to face. What I'd like to do is to take a look at this historical event that took place and really take a look at uh, the document that came out of the historical event and, and to just kind of like ask some, some questions because this is really worth everything. I think a lot of our faith just kind of hangs on this thing. Um, one of the questions that we're asking is, when the biblical authors are opening up and, and, and writing the document that we know today of as our Bible, like what kind, of, uh, what kind of writing are they producing here? You know, you, you read a story like this one and you see the number of people that he's almost encouraging his earlier listeners to go to. Hey, listen, if you don't believe me, that's fine. Uh, I want you to find Cephas, uh, Peter. I want you to find the 500 that he also appeared to, right? I want you to find the 12. I want you to find the apostles. Like, go after and find these people. Like, does it sound like he's just kind of telling a story, or does it sound like he's reciting history? He's like pointing to an event. You know, sometimes our, our second graders around here, and, and maybe this is in your background too, uh, do like a Christmas pageant, and they stand up, and they'll like quote, you know, and say like all of Luke 2, and a lot of you are like, I know, I had, to, I had to learn that, you know. In those days, Caesar, no, no, it wasn't just any Caesar, there were a lot of Caesars, but in those days, Caesar Augustus, okay, it was Caesar Augustus, right? Like there's a historical record that we can go back to there. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And it's like, why do we have our second graders learn this? It, 
Like, there are more important parts of the Bible than that. Hang on. Um, this was the first census that was to be taken while Quirinius, and the kids all struggle on that one, right? Like, Squirrelinius. No, no, Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's very important. Why? Because it looks like you got to understand, I made a careful investigation of all this stuff. I talked to eyewitnesses. I gathered their testimony. I want you to know not just what happened, but exactly when it happened. And I want second graders to memorize that this event took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Because this is a story that did not happen a long time ago. Once upon a time. It was not a story that took place in a galaxy far, far away. It was anchored in history. An event happened in a document was produced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. Sometimes, like, we don't, we don't, I don't know where else to say this all the time, so, like, you guys are my people, so I'm just going to get it off my chest. Sometimes, sometimes we overlook, like, the historical data, the historical record that is available to us Christians because we, we take the story like the Bible and we're like, you know, it's Bible and I accept that it's true and infallible and I do, I do, don't get me wrong, but it's also a historical document that sometimes we don't appreciate nearly as much on like a human historical level as we should. So just like some context on this, a lot of you had to like study Plato in college, right? And you had to do like the philosophy classes and stuff like that. Um, so one of uh, Plato's documents was called the Tetralogy and Plato's Tetralogy was probably written sometime around like 400, or sorry, sometime around 800 BC. And we don't have the first reproduction, the first copy of the original of Plato's Tetralogy until something like 400 BC, like 400 years later. And, and you know how many copies we have of the era of Plato's Tetralogy? Seven. There are seven remaining copies, none of the originals, those are lost, but seven remaining copies of Plato's Tetralogy from 400 years after the fact, okay? Just kind of hold that in our mind. Some of you have maybe seen the major motion picture, Troy, uh, starring Brad Pitt, loosely based off from a text called Homer's Iliad. The first copies of Homer's Iliad was something like 900 years after the document was estimated to be written. And how many copies of Homer's Iliad from that era, I'm not talking about your college textbook now, from that era, do we still have remaining? A lot. Just under 2,000, in fact. I mean, it's enough, all of this, to say, I mean, these are ancient documents. I mean, it's hundreds of years later, but like, it's ancient documents. And, there, and there's a lot of them, especially in Homer's case. So we don't question Homer's Iliad, as an ancient text, is like, yeah, it's there. The historical record proves it. Uh, Plato's Tetralogy, I mean, there's just seven copies, but like, they're old, man. Like, we got them. If we were to take a look at the Bible as a historical document and to see how often it was produced and reproduced and reproduced and found so valuable that it was copied and copied and copied and they just could not get enough of this text out there, we start to see that our New Testament was written, different authors remember, so in between the years 50 and about 100 AD. The very first scraps of writings that we have from the Gospel of John was found in 135 AD. It's like the same lifetime 
as when the original was written. Like, that's how close it was. And there's like seven copies of this Plato's thing and a couple thousand copies of the Homer's thing. You start to like see some of that, right? How many copies from that era do we have of what we'd call today as the the New Testament? There's almost 24,000 copies. It is by far the most documented writing in the era. And there wouldn't even come anything close to that level of reproduction in documenting and copied it until the invention of the printing press when it got a whole lot easier and a whole lot cheaper. And I'm just, I'm just saying this, I'm just saying this, just to highlight, like on a historical record, how known this story was, how widespread this story was. And then you start looking at the geography of it in like three different continents, you know, like writings found in, in Rome, in Egypt, in, uh, in uh, Istanbul, uh, back then, uh, Constantinople, uh, in Jerusalem, like, like all over the place. Like these writings proliferating just everywhere. And you're going, why? Not because it was a story that needed to be told. They had plenty of those. But because they believed it was true. And like, like, here's the thing. Whenever you study the Bible, I think this, this, fact, this fact is overlooked. And so it's a, like this much of a history lesson. So we're going a little deep, um, but then we're, we're com- coming back out of it. So just hang with me just for a moment. And so two timelines I don't want to post to you. Um, the first one uh, was kind of the, the rise of Christianity. We've covered a little bit of this before, and you may know some of this before. But, uh, you know, an event happened, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus. And then uh, and, and it started spreading. And uh, like we're talking the first few hundred years, 300 years uh, after the event that took place. And lots of people believe, right, all over the world. And we've got the letters that are going to these different churches gathering all over the world to, to demonstrate that fact, to prove that fact. Uh, so they, an event happens, and it starts to spread. I mean, this is the, the time in history when it's difficult, isn't it, to be a Christian. This is like the, the Emperor Nero burning down Rome, blaming the Christians. This is the, like, throw the Christians to the lions. It's illegal to be a Christian. And the more they tried to, like, stamp Christianity out, it's like the more those embers spread, and the fires just grew everywhere throughout the entire empire. You're tracking with me. That's the first couple few hundred years of Christianity. And then something else happened. It's well documented. In 313, a gentleman named uh, Constantine becomes emperor of the Roman Empire. He consolidates power and he's now in charge. And in 313 AD, Constantine decides to embody a leadership axiom that a lot of us have appreciated over the years. It's called, if you can't beat them, join them. And what this looked like for Constantine, hey, listen, instead of like Nero and all those Vespasian and all those other guys that tried to stamp Christianity out, if you can't beat them, I'm just going to join them. And in 313, Constantine did the remarkable thing of no longer making Christianity outlawed. In fact, it was the first step he went towards making Christianity the state religion of Rome and then by becoming the Holy Roman Empire. Now, as a pastor and as a fellow believer, I would love to say... I would love to say it's because the Holy Spirit, you know, found Constantine and opened up his eyes and gave him his whole new world of thinking. It was a big risk. It wasn't. It wasn't a big risk. There's no evidence of this miraculous thing taking place at all. What it very much looked like is Constantine going, boy, we need to unite the empire and get everybody all together. Hey, where's all the momentum going? What does everybody believe already? Now that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's our thing. We're good. We do that now, right? Like, 
We're going to ditch the, the Roman pantheon of gods. We're going to ditch the Egyptian gods, the sun god, all of that sort of stuff. And we are now going to be Christians because if you can't beat them, join us. And the reason why I'm sharing all of that history lesson is because over here we have another timeline of the, of the Bible, what we know as the Bible today. And like I said, it was first just scraps, these writings, these letters to these churches. But in 328 AD, it was compiled and the first official version of the New Testament was compiled together, bound along with what they knew of as the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Which means for 328 years, Christianity grew, grew like wildfire. For Christianity resisted persecution. Christianity was found appealing, was found inspiring, was found engaging. Long before the Bible ever told them so. Christianity was thriving not because the Bible settled it. Christianity thrived for those first few hundred years because an event took place. I think sometimes when we have found ourselves walking away from the faith, it's usually because of what Paul described as not taking our stand on this, which was of first importance, that Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures. They believed long before the Bible told them so because they were asking, is the event true. And Matthew sat down with a pen in his hand and said, it sure is. And Mark sat down with a pen in his hand and said, it sure is. And Luke sat down across from the eyewitnesses and gave their testimony. And Luke recorded all of their stories and compiled it together into his story. The punctuation at the end was, it sure is. And John said, man, he was my friend. It sure is. And James, the brother of of Jesus, who never followed Jesus, who was never one of his students, not while he was alive, but after his death and after his resurrection, James said, my older brother was the son of God. Is it true? It sure is. And so what that means for us today, and we're going to try to make this a little bit personal for us, what that means today is we believe that Jesus loves me this I know, for, and not because just the Bible tells me, so. we believe, Jesus loves me, this I know, for Luke, the investigator, tells me so, for Paul, who wanted nothing more than to lock away, or worse, every single Christian on this planet, and to never hear them from them again, did a 180 on the road to Damascus, and ends up spreading this gospel as far and as wide as he possibly can, tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for those original followers of Jesus would end up giving their lives as martyrs for what they saw and experienced because of what they tell me so, because of what James, the brother of Jesus, tells me so, and what that entire early church tells me so. The issue, your issue, if you've been thinking about walking away from this faith, your issue hasn't been trying to demonstrate 
the truthfulness or the veracity behind every single story in the Bible. The issue is and has always been around Jesus. He is the point. To accentuate that, a little while ago, I found myself uh, in this conversation, and as a pastor, you get into these conversations, and, uh, and I was like, this is why I can't believe, you know? And it was like, okay, what are, what are you, some of your reasons? And some of the stories, uh, some of the stories were cited. And like Genesis 3 was cited. I'm like, listen, God told the serpent that you would, for the rest of your days, he cursed the serpent for the rest of your days, you would eat dust. And I find myself in this absurd, like scientific, zoological conversation as to whether or not serpents, snakes eat dust. And after like going down this road for like 10 minutes with this dude, I'm like, well, well, hold on a second. Like I have to eject out of this conversation a second and be like, that is not the point. Some of us like grew up on some claims of Christianity that just like weren't the central claim. You're going through your faith and you're picking blocks out one at a time and trying to examine them in isolation to see if whether or not this faith holds up. And what I'm encouraging you is to just take this big block out at the bottom and say, is it true? that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you take a time machine back to Peter and you find him on the, in the fishing boat and you go, dude, like how could you believe this stuff? I mean, don't you, don't you know that like trumpets don't bring walls of tumbling down in Jericho? Like all those stories, like I don't know, fish don't eat people and they don't live inside. And Peter's going, are you kidding me, man? Like I'm a good Jewish kid. I believe that stuff, sure. Like that's not the issue. No, no, I believe because I saw Jesus die. And then when some women came up to me and said, he rose, I thought somebody took his body. <laughs> but then I had breakfast with him. And when he's teaching you everything he's teaching you from the Old Testament and beyond, <laughs> and you've seen him die and come back to life, like that stuff isn't so hard anymore. The point is and always has been Jesus. And if you're talking to somebody or if you yourself are on this like deconstruction journey and you're going, I don't know. I don't know. Is it Jesus that you're walking away from? Or is it something else that we've made it? A modern version. What we're going to do right now is to celebrate one more time. Uh, and celebrate a young man who's uh, taking this courageous step of saying, I'm not walking. Jesus is the point. And I don't know about him. He's a smart guy, and I think he could explain a lot of things. But what he's going to explain and show us this morning is Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. And that's the most beautiful starting point in the world. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for what you're up to today. God, we thank you for what you're doing in and through this community. We thank you for what you did last week and bringing those eight individuals far from you to new life in your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for what you're doing in Teague's life and moving in his heart to give him the courage to show the world that he's been raised with you. There's a million questions, Lord, that he and, and we are never gonna be able to answer. And that's okay because I don't know is also a courageous statement. But what we do know is this, that you died for our sins and rose again from the dead. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen.